Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rusciutti, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rusciutti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. There are twin economic and technological shifts taking place in the United States that are changing the geographical demographics of the workforce. That's a fancy way of saying folks are on the move and things are changing. The economic element of this change is increasingly prohibitive cost of living in cities that may have been essential to move to if you had ambitions about building a serious career, mainly in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. The technological element of the change is the internet. It turns out that with high quality video communications, many of the kinds of jobs you could only get if you lived in an expensive city can now be done from anywhere. There's no need to pay exorbitant rents in Silicon Valley, spend hours commuting in Los Angeles, or pay extraordinary sums for your kids' education in New York. When you can live in a spacious house in mid-city New Orleans, send your kids to Ben Franklin, and go hear music at the Maple Leaf on the weekend. Consequently, New Orleans and other small cities around the country are becoming home to a new population of fascinating, creative, smart, and interesting people. Not that those of us already here aren't fascinating, smart, creative, and interesting ourselves, but it's definitely to our benefit that we're now able to count as our neighbors people like my guests who are on Out to Lunch today. Hiram Meckling is one of the country's most highly regarded engineers in the field of wind power. Hiram is vice president of a company called Wood Thielstead USA, which specializes in green energy production, including wind power, and has offices and projects around the world in Denmark, Japan, Taiwan, and the UK. Here in the US, we are trailing way behind other nations in the development of wind power. Although it's well accepted worldwide that wind-generated power is a key component in moving us away from fossil fuels, the Biden administration has only just started focusing on the development of major offshore wind farms with the approval of the country's first utility-scale offshore wind energy project. It's called the Vineyard Wind Project, and it's located on the outer continental shelf south of Massachusetts. The senior project manager and professional engineer of record on the Vineyard Wind Project is Hiram Meckling. Hiram, welcome out to lunch. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. Caroline Landry Faruqi is a partner in an architecture and interior design company called Faruqi Faruqi. The two Farukis are Caroline and her husband, Sabri. The Farukis were living in New York City when they decided if they were ever going to have a decent quality of life for themselves and their son, they'd have to make a change. That decision resulted in relocating to New Orleans. So now New Orleans is the home of the Faruqi family and Faruqi and Faruqi with its nationwide clientele in international design and architecture projects. Caroline, welcome out to lunch. Thanks so much, happy to be here. Now Hiram, it seems like we're on the brink of a major boom in ocean-based wind energy production in the United States. There have been announcements about big upcoming projects off the coasts of California and New York, but the first of these major projects, the one that is not just announced, but is actually happening, is the one you're involved with, 
the Vineyard Project. Now, given that most of us know very little about wind-powered energy production, maybe a good place to start would be by telling us a little about what you do. Your title on the Vineyard Project is Senior Project Manager and Professional Engineer of Record. Now, that sounds like if you're not the boss, you're, you're pretty close to it. What is your day-to-day like, and, and how can you pull this off in New Orleans? Well, it's, it's been a long time coming. So th- this, this project's been in the works for uh, many years. And we started on the project in 2018, designing the, the foundation. So what I do on a day-to-day basis, I'm, I'm a foundation uh, design expert. So uh, the, the foundations off of, of, off of um, or for Vineyard Wind are monopile foundations, are the, the most common foundation type in the world. And uh, the reason I can do it from New Orleans is because this is an international industry. So the people I work with are in, in Europe, in Denmark, and England, but they're also all over the United States. So um, I, what I do is I coordinate with, with people all over the globe, bringing it together, directing the project, and, and making sure everything comes together so we can fabricate these uh, monopiles and, and get them installed in, off of Massachusetts. Now, Harm, the foundations you're talking about, is this what the blades are on, in other words, uh, kind of from the surface to the bottom of the, uh, the seafloor? That's correct. That's correct. Yep. So you can relate to the offshore oil and gas industry where you have a, a, uh, a substructure and a top sides. That's usually how it's broken up. So in our case, the, our, our monopile would be the, the substructure. Our design uh, uh, j- j- focuses on about 20 meters above the waterline and below. Um, yeah, th- these monopiles are eight meters in diameter up top, which is pretty big. It's about, you know, almost 20 feet. And at the seafloor, where we're going into 50 meters of water, um, it's about nine meters right around there. So massive pieces of steel. Um, th- these offshore wind farms are the one that I'm working on. It's 800 megawatts. So we will have 62 foundations. So you can imagine the amount of steel and the, the logistics that go into that from getting these foundations actually in this project uh, fabricated in Europe, shipped across the Atlantic Ocean, staged off of uh, or in Massachusetts, and then finally installed with gigantic hammers and gigantic vessels. Uh, Which is why I'm not doing it, and you are. <laughs> they, uh, now, Caroline, because of broadband and Zoom, you can live in New Orleans and stay in touch with clients across the country and, and around the world. It's also easy for new clients to find you being based somewhere else is no longer a negative for engaging in all kinds of business, including apparently an architecture and design firm. But none of this nationwide or international success is going to happen unless you're good at what you do. And there's so much more to running a successful company than just whatever you personally can do or even whatever you and your husband can do. You have to rely on delegating tasks and on hiring people who are capable of working on projects at the highest level. There are lots of those people in New York. I would think there would be fewer of them in New Orleans. So it's all very well to move here. But how do you build a New York or Los Angeles level company here? That is a great problem. You have read into our biggest challenge of having this company here. We have so many inquiries for new business that we have to turn down a decent amount of them because um, we're just having a hard time building a team that um, has like the same work ethic and design aspirations as us. Um, you know, we try to look at the local schools. We have two great employees from Tulane, um, but you know, we want diversity of ideas and diversity of backgrounds and 
New York is just a hub for that. You know, it just attracts people from all over the world, from, you know, Asia and Europe. And here, you know, we, we want that same variety of design thinking. And so it's been the biggest challenge of our company is how do we grow with the right team who shares the same aspirations of, you know, really good quality of design, plus just, you know, uh, good communication skills and good, you know, program skills. So, um, you know, we've started reaching out across the country just to like offices where we used to work or um, the alumni networks of our old schools um, and trying to recruit that way. It hasn't really worked yet, <laughs> but hopefully <laughs> as people get to know us more and like hopefully we'll get, you know, people will know us across the country in a few years, hopefully, um, we'll have a better, an easier time attracting people from all over the country. Now, we should point out that you originally from Lafayette. Yes, yes, Lander yes, name, so yes. you had a connection and then Hiram, you went <laughs> yes. to... Let's see, went to Loyola and Tuline here, so That's that right. wasn't yep. yeah, that wasn't out of thin air either. Uh, Hiram, um, Caroline and I both have connections in Massachusetts, and I I'll start out with this: um, what you do is somewhat controversial up there. Hmm. Uh, why and how do you sell it to people? You know, any sort of major project is, is controversial. Uh, there's, there's, there's always something, whether you're doing a, a power project or a highway or a building, you, you need, there are a number of stakeholders involved. So you need, to, you need early engagement and you need transparency. Um, you know, with this project, there's been a lot of engagement uh, from the beginning, uh, lots of uh, man hours and, and money spent engaging the community and making sure everyone is um, on board on the project. Um, and, and it seems like it seems like it, it is, you know, I think there's always going to be uh, folks where you're not going to get everything. But, you know, it, it's a it's a it's, it's a compromise sometimes. Uh, what do they really complain about the, the view? Is that well, kind of a problem? Sometimes. Yeah. So these wind turbines are 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard. It's pretty, pretty, pretty far away. So you can't see this from the, the mainland. Uh, you, you have to go out to the islands and you have to stare out there and you could barely see them. <laughs> so they're not quite over the horizon, but it's, uh, it, it's really more the fishing industry and, and working, working with them. And what's, and what's happened uh, is that the project's actually adjusted the, the layout and spaced out the wind turbines even further apart. So now they're one nautical mile apart. And again, that's pretty big. It's 5,000 feet apart. These are eight meter uh, foundations. So it's just navigating around those, which seems seems pretty pretty reasonable. Even at night, um, there's radars on uh, in the facility to where it, everything's pitch dark unless there's a plane flying close. And then lights will turn on just to, just to say, yeah, we're over here, don't hit us, basically. So uh, even light pollution is even taken into account. You know, with this day and age where we are as a, as a, uh, as a world, you know, we're very conscientious of, of everything. And as an industry, that's what we're known for is being conscientious. Now, Caroline... Um what, what kind of projects should I be thinking that you're doing? Uh, uh, bars, restaurants, that kind of thing? So we have a variety of projects. Uh, my, my true passion is hospitality design, um, which would include restaurant or bar design as well as hotel design. Um, so we have basically all of those projects in our portfolio and are currently working on those three types of projects. But we also have done multifamily housing, um, 
of several projects with the domain companies, the local developer here. Matt Schwartz. He's, yes. He was my student. Yes. I, I think he hung the moon. So <laughs> if you're yeah. his friend, you're my friend. So. He's awesome. Um, they have been a great support since moving here. We had a coffee with him, um, you know, probably in the first month of moving down here. And then a year later, they hired us for, it was our biggest project, you know, at the time. Um, the Odeon. We've done two projects in Salt Lake City with them, and we're working on two more in the Bronx right now. Um, so multifamily, what else are we doing? We just built our house, which was um, our first architecture and interior design true collaboration. Um, right. And that's seeming like it's already leading to more projects. Um, Sabri's background is in more core and shell architecture, really cool, like Columbia's Business School in New York, with the Berkeley Art Museum, so like really experimental architecture. And so we're hoping that as our reputation grows, we can continue to build that architecture, true architecture practice. Now, right you, now ma- you mentioned interiors. something, Caroline, in that uh, previously, where you were talking about your your projects, they look they look good for a long time. They have a better shelf life. And use the term anthropology design, which I assume is not that really cool retail store. What, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I used to work at the retail design company that designed anthropologies. <laughs> but um, we like to really understand um, our clients' backgrounds and desires, the site's background and history, um, and like the history of the general neighborhood to understand how we can fit in. And it's not that we'll ever just like copy the style of something that's in the neighborhood, like our house, we live in the lower garden district, but it's very modern. Um, You know, so it's not that we're like copying that, but we want to be really sensitive to what people care about um, and what really matters and what stories are really important to them to help inspire our designs. Really just understanding the people who are going to be occupying the space, the client's um, history and the site's history to help inform and inspire the design. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with designer Caroline Faruqi and wind power engineer Hiram Meckling. Now, Hiram, you knew I was going to ask you this, right? Is <laughs> Can we have these, these wind farms in the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah, I, I think so. And actually, there's a, a task force that's uh, being made right now uh, through John Bell Edwards and, and, and the uh, uh, Louisiana Governor's Office. Uh, they actually went to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and asked if they, they could make this task force to start looking at uh, creating wind energy areas in Massachusetts. What uh, the government has decided to do is to bring make, make this a multi-state uh, deal. So where Texas, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, and Alabama are together, and make it, make it more of a regional approach, are going to look at um, offshore wind. So yeah, I think so. Oh, that's a, Boy, those four states have had to team up in the past for offshore oil and gas so I mean they should be able to and you can see that the supply chain uh, for offshore uh, oil and gas is here in the Gulf of Mexico that's where all the um, most of the offshore assets are in in the U.S. so supply chain's already here we have the we have the people you know whether the engineers like myself project project managers or the people that are actually building the facilities offshore or servicing them so it's it's a great place to be doing this. Hiram I'll ask you I know it doesn't work this way, but if you had like a hurricane, mm-hmm. would that supply enough electricity for the world for the next two weeks? Or? Well, we, we do design for uh, hurricanes, but uh, in, in an event like that, that's where you would uh, uh, 
stop production. Okay. You know, so if the wind speed gets too great, you you uh, feather it out or you or you yaw it around to make sure that the facility or the, the the blades or the tower does not break. So, but for these offshore structures, we actually design it for 500-year return period uh, storms, even in Massachusetts or anywhere in the United States. That's what we design for. Jeez, because yeah. we have like 100-year storms like every year. So Katrina was a 400-year storm, so it'd be bigger than Katrina. I didn't even know those were recorded. That's a, that's so cool. And Caroline, are your pieces, um, are they brand new, for instance, if you're doing a restaurant or a bar or such, or do you do renovations? Um, that's a great question. Mostly, yeah, we rarely do renovations. I think that's kind of, it's been a filter of how we decide if we're going to take a project or not. Like. Unless it's something really meaningful, like my parents needing help with their house or something, you know. <laughs> Can't say no to that. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, we like to we like to start from scratch. So that's the the short answer. And if I were to go into a hotel that you're working on, uh, what would be your piece? So I'm in charge of um, all the finishes and the lighting strategy, as well as um, all of the furniture. And then Sabri and I will oftentimes collaborate on the millwork. Um, and the more we grow our company, the more custom pieces we do. So um, for most of our projects now, almost all of the furniture, lighting, and millwork is custom, um, which just makes it that much more fun. Um, we're actually looking for furniture designer to to bring on board because these hospitality projects you know you have like 50 of the same chair which allows you to do something totally custom because you can you know you have the quantities of scale um now you mentioned hospitality i've got to ask what happened okay i would think that during the pandemic there was one of two camps uh places said wow this is a great time to you know do the things i've wanted to do everything's down or the phone never rang again which was it um luckily the week before um, the first case was announced in New Orleans, we had flown down to Grand Cayman to kick off a new hotel project, which is a huge, it's a whole resort and we're doing all of the interiors for it. So the timing was super lucky for us and it's a really well-established developer, so they didn't put the brakes on. Um, so that's really carried us through because we used to get weekly calls, um, if not you know twice a week for new projects and during the pandemic, it was like crickets. So you know we're so grateful for having that project in Grand Cayman. We also have a local boutique hotel that's being developed. Um, so those two, like, thank goodness we had broken into hotel designs because the scale of those projects was enough to carry our whole office through. But both of you can do this from New Orleans. I mean, uh, Hiram, you can't, you're not physically assembling the things, uh, but, but the part you do, the design, that, that could be done anywhere, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's the way it's been. You know, most of these projects I've worked on, uh, or all of them, are somewhere else, whether that's Taiwan, uh, Europe, uh, East Coast, United States, wherever, you know, it's just where you have the, the talent pool. And, you know, uh, uh, historically, the uh, offshore talent pool has been in New Orleans or uh, Houston, for instance. So that that's where, why I'm here, you know. So and, directly a tie-in to the skills you'd use yeah. for oil and gas. Because you know, one of the things people are talking about now is as fossil fuels kind of roll off, um, you know, what are we going to do for employment for those mm-hmm. folks? But Thank you sure. Bring yeah. that up. I think it's. Uh, I, I mean, it's already happening. Um, you know, the the industry's really matured, and uh, you see uh, 
major companies, including the big oil companies, in you know into these U.S. projects like uh, BP and Shell, for instance, uh, who have a huge presence in, in, in New Orleans. Uh, they're now invested in these projects here in the United States and elsewhere in the world. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them all at some point investing in, in offshore wind just to diversify their uh, their work. Caroline, how do you sell New Orleans? Well, first of all, compared to New York, the cost of living is much more manageable. I won't say it's cheap, but, you know, we were paying $3,000 $3, a month for a one-bedroom apartment with a 45 minute commute to Manhattan. Um, and now, you know, our mortgage is like $2,000 um, and we have a two bedroom house. So, you know, the cost of living is super attractive. And I think New Orleans, like obviously the food and the people here and the culture and music, Mardi Gras, like it has so much to offer. And I love this place so much. And it, I mean, it's just beautiful as a designer, the natural beauty of this city is so attractive. And I think it has so much potential from a design perspective. Like um, when we moved here, there weren't a lot of firms that we wanted to work for. And that's really why we started our own company. And I mean, I don't want to there are tons of really good firms, but like young up and coming firms, we didn't see a lot. But now there are several firms just like us who, you know, if if a position didn't open up for us, there are several firms here um, pushing the envelope. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like the culture of design, I think, is all like raising up together um, and pushing pushing ideas and pushing boundaries. And as a design creative, you want to live in a place where people are excited about that kind of thing. Um, and I think this city is like, um, it's it's growing to be more welcoming of that. Um, and I'm not sure why that is, or if it's always, you know. It's you, Caroline. That's what <laughs> right, it is. Right, right. That's what it is. Hiram, who, who likes you and who hates you? Not not Hiram himself, but the uh, <laughs> offshore um, wind. Is it, like, for instance, the utility business. What do they think of this whole push? Well, I think a lot of the utilities are on board. Uh, the, the ones on the East Coast, uh, it's like Dominion Energy, one of the biggest utilities in the United States. They have uh, jumped in headfirst recently into developing the largest offshore wind project in the United States, so a 2,600 megawatt project into multi-phases. So they have drank the Kool-Aid and they're finally going forward with it. Um, other other utilities um, on, uh, on the East Coast have paired up with developers that do have the know-how from Europe and so th they are, are getting into it. Um, I, I think it, it's really matured. You know, it's we're, we're talking about very large uh, wind farms that are that are uh, profitable, and um, I just don't think they want to miss out, especially in their own backyard. So, if they see this coming, they're going to jump on it because they don't want some other developer, you know, selling it to them at a premium. But, but don't utilities actually have stated requirements of how much they have to? Uh, generate uh, from non-fossil fuels so they state to state yeah it, it, it's, it's a state to state thing and and that's uh one of the main reasons why uh the east coast states have really uh started moving moving along really quickly um the states um in massachusetts for instance um in 2016 17 there was a mandate to procure a certain amount of electricity electricity from offshore wind by a certain date and that uh, ha has triggered a, a market. Caroline, first of all, I wanted to compliment you on the work you did on something near and dear to me is the Tulane Commons. The, oh, uh, yeah. 
oh, there, yeah, our dining facility. There, yeah. yeah. That is the most... To call that a cafeteria is just ridiculous. It's an incredible <laughs> it, space. It re- I mean, we can't... We, we're a small, very small part of it. But, um, yeah, it's an incredible building. Um, uh, Weissman Freddie um, did the architecture, and we did the... Um, basically the furniture design. So um, it was a great project, a really great team. Um, and it was a fun challenge. The um, What they asked us to do was to basically try to create like little neighborhoods so it just didn't feel like a big sea of right. um, chairs. So we really tried to break up. It's a huge space. It seats, I think, about a 1,000 students and faculty. Um, and so we broke up the all the spaces into kind of smaller different areas that facilitated different types of interactions. You know, so there are like big communal tables for the student groups, but then little um, intimate booths that only seat, seat two people for the introverts on campus. I will and, never go in this place again and yeah. feel the same way. This yeah. is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You don't, as you get to be at a uh, older, you don't go to all-you-can-eat facilities anymore. And so I brought, <laughs> I brought two friends of mine there and, and, they were just, they ordered, I went there for breakfast, and we, we, they ordered pancakes, and then they finished, and they looked at me, and they said, could I also get the omelet? It's like, <laughs> you know, yes, it's, like, it's not part of your life anymore after that. And Hiram, the, um, I knew this uh, when I used to work at the treasurer's office, is, the, what is how does it work again? The, the first three miles in the water is mm. state, and, then, and after that it's federal? Is that how it works? Yeah. Generally, that's the way it works. I think in uh, Texas and maybe California, maybe a little bit different. They may have uh, state waters, maybe a, bit, a little bit further out. But you know, off of, uh, of East Coast and Louisiana, it is three nautical miles, and then uh, federal waters. I think 250 miles out. Now, Caroline, the reason we know this, the reason it's so important, is that um, you get the oil royalties if it's within three miles, and then the feds get them. And so we battled the federal government for ever about where the water ended and uh, oh, you know we had huh. it off south america and, and they sense. thought it was onshore homa you know and we went on yeah. for some time but it was a lot of money so yeah. it was 1984 yeah. so hmm. and hiram this part really i first of all i know you started your career as an intern with mcdermott which is right. offshore yep. Uh, yep. oil and gas um but when i look at oil projects particularly in the deep gulf of mexico they say it's a, it could be a four-year timetable between the time they bid on the property and oil's going out to a refinery. It's mm. a long time. What What's the time frame here? They're actually pretty long-term as well. You know, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, procuring the, um, the or, or in the United States, actually, the way you, you get these leases is, is it's an auction process. So the, the federal government does an auction. The, the last time uh, this happened was off of Massachusetts where three new... Um, uh, wind energy areas were sold. Each one of those went for $135 million each. A couple of years before that, it might have been a couple million dollars. And I think actually some of those same places, uh, when there was an auction, they weren't sold because people weren't interested. So things have changed rapidly. So, Peter, we could have went out there and bought this and we'd be retired by now. But, yeah. so Just sold off the lease again, right? They, it would have been good. Yeah, that, and that's what happens a lot of times is, you know, you, know, you, can, you can once you own it, you can flip the lease and all that too. So. Well, not to be too political about this, but you got a long-term project, yep. and administrations change both at yeah. the state level and the federal. Oh, like, yeah. you know, I think it's pretty obvious. I don't think the Trump administration had you know much of a push for something like this, but the Biden administration does. What happened if you're if you change presidents and you're in the middle of a project? Do you do you worry about that? Well, this is a, a, a newish industry in the United States. is actually pretty new, and and I think that's some of the stuff that we're we're figuring out right now. Uh, 
Um, I, th I think you did mention at the beginning that um, the, the Vineyard Wind Project did get the approval with the record of decision. So what that means is that the uh, uh, permitting process from, on the federal level basically comes to an end and you can start working through the other processes as well. Um, you know, during the uh, the Trump administration, there, there was a lot of progress made. Um, you know, like those loose lease sales um, off of Massachusetts happened at that time. Uh, the states really came together saying we really want to push this. Uh, but there was, uh, um, th that one uh, approval was actually stymied during during uh, the Trump administration. The Biden administration has made it very clear that they're, they're, they want this industry to take off. And it certainly makes sense because there's a lot of money flowing into it in all kinds of different states, um, and a, a number of stakeholders, including big oil, and um, they just see the potential for a lot of jobs, a lot of, 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 of uh, high-paying jobs, plus um, being able to uh, close down some of the old facilities, some of the, uh, the coal-fired facilities, for instance, and to and to bring this clean energy to scale right next to them. So they're not having to build transmission lines for miles and miles onshore, but they're able to transport the electricity through cables, just like you would transport oil and gas in a cable t to shore d down here in the South Louisiana, same sort of way, connected to the grid, and you're right by New York City, you're right next to uh, these large cities like Boston as well. So And Caroline... If we bring you back, and I'd love to do this in three to five years, what will it look like? What will Fruki and Fruki look like? I would hope we're a little bit bigger. Right now, we've been kind of vacillating in the four to six people range. I'd love to be not huge, but maybe, you know, 10 to 12 people. Um, Sabri and I both love being super involved, and I feel like, you know, if we were to get a lot bigger than that, we wouldn't really have the time to still design. Um, I would hope that we would have projects all over the world. You know, we just got our first international project about a year ago, the Hotel in Green Cayman. Um, and we love to go to Asia, Southeast Asia, Japan. We love that part of the world. Um, so hopefully we would be global um, and maybe have a second office somewhere that we love, like um, New York or someplace abroad. Um, but I think I would hope that we still are doing a lot of hospitality projects and that we would have a more developed architecture wing. And maybe Sabri and I will be a little more, even more differentiated than we are now. <laughs> we all agree that New Orleans is a great place to live. We also have to agree that running a business here comes with challenges. But when it comes to work-life balance, the advantages of living here undoubtedly outweigh the difficulties. And as financial and technological opportunities make it more attractive for talented people and successful companies to locate here, and less necessary for talented locals to leave, we're only going to see our business base expand. It, it may seem a bit premature to call this a renaissance, but Caroline and Hiram, it wouldn't be totally out of line to call you both indicators of change. It has been a pleasure to meet you both. Thank you for believing in New Orleans, and thank both of you for joining me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you very much. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Hiram Meckling, Vice President of Wood Thilstead USA and Senior Project Manager and Professional Engineer of Record on the Vineyard Wind Project, and Caroline Landry, Faruqi. She's the partner at Faruqi Faruqi. We edited this show to fit into our time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Hiram's wind power and Caroline's architecture and design by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsneworleans.com. 
If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Taproom, 3001 Chapatula Street. Open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Taproom has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Out to Lunch is brought to you by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed. And at MitchellForeman.com. <laughs>